there is a questionable value to a global town square to begin with. There's been an obvious set of problems and challenges and abuses and all with operating that town square. Should there be one giant chat room to rule them all? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, December 6th. Today, I'm joined by Baratunde Thurston to have a conversation about Twitter, and not just about mean tweets or Elon Musk's latest antics. If Twitter goes away, what happens to the digital town square? Where would we go, not just for news, but for basic information about weather, public safety, community updates, posts we take for granted right now, but that soon might not be available? We'll discuss. And later, Julia Alexander is here to talk about Netflix's paradox of having the most successful shows they've ever had while also having the worst financial year they've ever had. Julia is here to break down how Netflix can flip the script. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode, Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code POWERS. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Baratunde Thurston, my colleague, founding partner at Puck, who I think for the third podcast in a row is joining me from his mobile content studio, aka his car, <laughs> somewhere in LA. So you wrote a piece a week ago called The Post-Twitter Promised Land. This is the subhead, which I think gets at, at what we're going to talk about. We all complain incessantly about the world's most infamous microblogging platform, hate speech, divisiveness, stupidity, bots. So what's the future of the digital town square post-Elon rule? And you walk through some of the alternatives out there. One thing I and people who follow you like is you're a curious guy and you you actually tried to get on Mastodon, which is one of these alternatives. But just stepping back for a second, are you worried about the town square post-Elon? Because the town square didn't feel that great 
uh, before Elon either. <laughs> I think there is a questionable value to a global town square to begin with. It's an interesting premise for a product. Like, should there be one giant chat room to rule them all? And in practice, we don't all experience the same room, but there's been an obvious set of uh, problems and challenges and abuses and all with operating that town square. So I've been gleeful in terms of finding something new. I've also been mourning in terms of what we might lose. And there's value as a public directory that I'm starting to realize like, oh, Twitter was just a good place to, it was like the white pages. You know, it was a good place to look people up and see where they're at and how they refer to themselves the way we used to do with web pages. And then I think about, you know, the culture that have contributed so much to Twitter and particularly black people and the whole black Twitter phenomenon and sort of wondering what's going to happen with that. Uh, so I worry about, you know, the quality of the conversation. I worry about the technical infrastructure. And then I think I'm worried because there's still so many people on it and clearly fewer people minding the store. So with Elon unsubtly signaling the type of speech he wants to be free on there, which tends toward more conspiratorial right-wing noise and a lot of information warfare happening on the platform on a constant basis, which he doesn't seem to take so seriously, then I just have to worry about real-world consequences. As, as cute as it is to talk about Twitter as a trash heap, it can be an important space. So if people are left unprotected in this chaotic time, that's also worrisome. It's important to remember too, like we all talk about Twitter and we say things like Twitter isn't real life. And we all have to remember that Twitter is, it's Peter's feed. It's the people I follow. It's the people you follow. Everyone creates their own network, their own map. And everyone's seeing different things. Everyone's aggravated by different things. Everyone's using it a different way. Like comedians use Twitter in a different way than political journalists use Twitter. You know, I was talking to someone over the weekend who was pointing out we're having a similar conversation. And she said, like, I follow the local police department on Twitter because it's good for information. <laughs> and, you know, and like you forget that people like that's the white pages example you are using. I mean, I'm a big Twitter critic while also simultaneously abusing it. <laughs> yeah. And then hopefully you criticize Twitter on Twitter. Oh, uh, yeah. All the time. Which I think is 20 percent of all. Tweets. <laughs> of just like, why is this platform terrible? So, so, yeah, I am looking for another possible home for my textual social media relationship because I don't really trust that Twitter is going to be around or, or what remains will be a place I want to spend time. So I've been spending most of my time with Mastodon. And I'll talk about that for a moment. There's also Post, which Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway uh, have money or like deep relationships involved in uh, that they talk about their Pivot podcast. Uh, there's Tribal, which is a, tries to be a, a more pure Twitter clone. There's even a Web3, like, blockchain-based one called Lens, uh, where you get to like port your graph and your profile across uh, platforms. But Mastodon is the one that most of the people I see talking on Twitter about migrating, that's the country they, they're looking to immigrate to and trying to figure that out. And that's where I've spent most of my time in terms of what life post-Twitter might look like for me. What's been your experience? It is like traveling backwards and forwards in time simultaneously. Mastodon, you know, my piece lays out some of the technical challenges of it, but it is at core, it's, it's a decentralized federated system. So it's an open source code base and anyone can spin up their own Mastodon server, their own Mastodon instance. So there's different web servers, there's different Mastodon servers, and you can affiliate yourself with one. Your identity is tied to the server. That's like your home server, almost like gmail.com is your email server. That's different and servers have different relationships to each other. So each server 
moderates conversation differently, uh, has different policies on what types of speech are allowed. So there's no global mastodon terms of service. There's, there's no behavioral profile across the whole service. It's a protocol. And then the practice of that protocol depends on the people. And so that makes it more community-based and more kind of local already. And there's some really beautiful pieces to that because you can kind of choose what type of neighborhood do I want to live in? Uh, but it also has, is a lot more work than we've been used to in terms of just install the app, claim your username, upload a profile pic, and start harassing people. Like that's, that's generally been the promise of social media. So Mastodon forces us to be more conscious about what communities we want to be grounded in and then how we're going to interact, you know, across these federated systems. Yeah. I mean, tech, we have a word for that called friction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, the barrier to entry to Mastodon is an impediment to growth. I mean, I like, that's the thing. Um, I'm not saying every single person posting on Twitter or any platform, like the end game is to go super viral, but it feels like you're, average Joe or Jane is going to have a hard time accessing this kind of like crypto, honestly. Well, the, the beauty of it, and this is why I say it's like moving backwards and forwards. So it's moving backwards because when you reply on a thread in Mastodon, you see the handles of all the other people you're replying to. A few years ago, Twitter updated the code to kind of hide that from the text of the tweet itself. So you just saw the body of the message, not all the header information. That is a, a, a technical user interface step backwards. The step forward is, I know people who've had negative experiences on one Mastodon server in terms of harassment and abuse, and they just migrated to a different one that had policies they liked. They voted with their feet, like moving from Massachusetts to Texas or vice versa. And so that federalism is in practice there in a different way. And the friction is purposeful, right? You have to be more conscious of your choice. You also don't have viral mechanics. There's no algorithm. This is a simple reverse chronological feed. So now we're going backwards in time again. (laughs) Yet I have so much more control over how my information is used and who I'm affiliated with. That's a great leap forward. Twitter didn't let me do that. It's what Elon talks about wanting to make Twitter. This is real now. We don't have to wait for him to fire and rehire and fire and rehire and figure it out in fits and starts. You can start playing with that ideology right now. So, So the politics is in the code. Uh, and the sociology is as well. And so it's a truly fascinating place. And I think to get to a more pointed answer, my experience has been calmer. Like people are actually going back and forth with thoughts. And and sometimes I will see a, a Twitter transplant come through with Twitter energy. Uh, George Takei, the actor and activist, he's huge on Twitter. He just, he drops bombs constantly. And he's on Mastodon, like doing the exact same thing. And I guess he just like trying to build a bunch of followers and do the George Takei thing. And that's cool, but that's not really what Mastodon is about. And there is no leaderboard and there's no trending topics. So if you're there for for the fame and the clout, it's just a less rewarding experience. And that's kind of cool. I think one of the final things I want to ask you is, and some of this feels performative, some of this feels like this has like, I'm moving to Canada energy. <laughs> Peter, that's so good. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like people, a lot of people on the left are making a statement that they're going to leave Twitter and saying goodbye. Check me out on Macedon or I'm going to see what, what else pops up, but I can't be here. Some people say that and are certainly lurking. We'll probably come back. But beyond the like politics, like, can you give people a reason 
to be concerned by the breakdown of, of this network? I'll, I'll come back to where we started. I think Twitter has provided a level of accessibility and simplicity in one place, twitter.com, the Twitter app, where you could find out if someone was there and, and what their website was. Like they put it on their Twitter account. This is my preferred website. And so you can kind of trust that. It's become infrastructure. I mean, we get weather updates. We get emergency alerts. We get missing people reports through Twitter. Governments operate in this space and not just like Ukraine and State Department and matters of war, but like hyper local like governments, HOAs, you know, posting updates on Twitter. And, and so for that to fail, for technical or um, critical mass of users or ideological reasons, doesn't really matter. If it goes away, it's, it's going to have an impact on daily life that I think we've all underestimated because it's really cheap and easy to say, I'm not on Twitter, or I don't care what you had for lunch or Nazis, Nazis, whatever your angle on it is. But when the local fire department, you know, giving evacuation orders and a tweet is the way a lot of people can get access to it, that goes away. That's a problem. That's a reason to be concerned. And then there's some cultural value. Me Too and Black Lives Matter are two cultural movements that would not have existed were, were it not for Twitter to the same degree that they did. And they affected conversation. They affected companies and the way they spent their money or they talked about spending their money. They affected lawsuits. You know, and they, and it still obviously affects elections in a bigger sense. And so any change in that, in any direction, that's a public interest, how we express our civicness and how we try to mediate all of our differences. Twitter was a really big part of that. So as it diffuses into other platforms, whether it fully dies or not, who knows, but the energy is already sapped to some degree. When people like me are spending more time on Mastodon now than Twitter, that's actually a big deal. And it's not just a, a horn tooting thing, but like I'm a power user. <laughs> so if you start losing your power users, like I've recruited hundreds, if not thousands of people into this platform. But I think enough folks like that make a move, then it shifts the, the cultural center of the place as well. And so all, all that matters, you know, in the same way it matters, like who owns Disney, right? And, and what they think is important and, and who's funding uh, local media. All of that affects our day-to-day life in ways that are indirect, but still, I think, pretty powerful. Yeah, I'm thinking of that Pew study from 2019 that said 10% of Twitter users create 80% of the tweets. <laughs> like 3% of the U.S. population creates 90% of the tweets. And if the power users are going away, where where goes the content? But thank you for pointing out the infrastructure public interest aspect of this, because I, being snarky and cynical, have said like, wouldn't it be great if everyone just like Twitter just got turned off for like a week and people could just like get back to their lives. But again, going back to what I said in the beginning, that's my experience with Twitter. Like my experience with Twitter is like reading the news, sometimes getting cranky with different people's tweets, judging people for spending too much time on Twitter. And you forget about the fact that if it wasn't there, where do people go when the wildfires are coming? Shoot, where do people go to like figure out like when the, Parade starts, you know? I don't know. The good news, like death is also birth. And if Twitter is dying, then I'm hopeful that it gives birth to something, something that was stifled by Twitter's very existence. You know, and, and if we start talking about the idea that it is costly and painful to recreate your social graph every time you move, you know, in a digital world, that shouldn't be like if you physically move houses, 
It makes sense. That's laborious. You got to pack up all your furniture, gather up your rugs and whatnot, take paintings off the wall, hire a truck and move it across town or across the country or wherever and reinstall all that stuff. But we're dealing in bits that are perfectly replicable. So migrating from Twitter to another network should have nothing in common with migrating your physical house. Yet that's what we make people do. And we've been trapped by these networks as well. And so as we shake them up a little bit, it's like worth reassessing. What is the value of this thing to me? Can I live with more or less of it in my life? And as I recreate, can I own my relationships to begin with, own my own social graph and, and have companies build infrastructure around that? But ultimately, these they're my interests. They're my human connections and my institutional connections, whether it's the fire department or you or a college friend. And so the idea that some company owns the link, that's antithetical to the point of the internet to begin with. Um, and I think it's antithetical to a lot of our ideas of what freedom is. So I, I hope that this moment causes some of us, at least. I don't think everybody's going to be thinking at this level, but I hope more than usual we'll start to question what we've been involved with and how we define social media and, and give birth to some new stuff. And so in that spirit, I'm, I'm hopeful that post succeeds in some weird way that I can't anticipate or tribal or lens or something I haven't named yet because it's just an, an opportunity to to start something fresh and try something different. And I think we need to. Twitter is also very stale. That is true. Bertende, thank you for being so thoughtful and thank you for your optimism. All right, talk to you soon. When we come back, Julia Alexander talks about all things Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy. We're with our expert in all things streaming, Julia Alexander. Hey, Julia. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm good. You and I have talked before about the predicament that is trapping so many streaming companies right now in Hollywood, and especially um, entertainment companies that have linear TV and film divisions, but are also trying to pivot to streaming. Um, obviously, streaming is the future that everybody's headed towards, but the economics don't entirely add up right now. Netflix is plateauing. Its content spend is something like $17 billion a year, which is just an ungodly amount of money, no matter how you look at it. And that was fine when the subscriber numbers were going up because you're investing in growth. But when subscriber growth is slowing or getting tapped out, that content arms race really becomes something like a war of attrition. And so Netflix in particular has to get really smart because, of course, the impulse, if you're Ted Sarandos, is to say, well, let's just make incredible content that people can't live without. But as you've been writing and reporting, um, and you've got a story coming out to this effect later today, 
It's actually a lot more complicated than that because Netflix had incredible blockbuster shows this past year, right? And yet they've had, at the same time, one of their worst business years in history. There's a couple of things happening here. The first thing to your exact point is if we look at Netflix's own reported top 10 um, kind of premieres, that's the way to think about it because they basically boast the top 10 shows, English and non-English speaking and movies as well, um, that have performed within the first 28 days. So the way we can think of it really is like the best premieres. People tend to loop in this in as the biggest shows of all time. We can't really make that distinction. But if we look at those five of the top 10 big biggest premieres on the English-speaking side of television, uh, all premiered in 2022. The top three all premiered in 2022, and that includes Bridgerton season two, Dahmer, which is just crossed over a billion hours viewed in the first 60 days. It's the third show ever to do that behind Squid Game. And then Stranger Things season four, of course. So while all these things were happening, and within the time that that was happening, we saw a little bit of subscriber growth in the third quarter. So Stranger Things and Dahmer helped bring, you know, about 100,000 subscribers in, still nothing compared to what Netflix used to bring in. What we did see happen was that they lost a ton of subscribers, especially in their most important market, the United States and Canada. And this is because while television and film and Hollywood is still very much a hits-driven business, hits brings in subscribers, hits tends to reduce churn, they tend to keep people engaged. What Netflix really needs to do is target what we refer to as high-risk churners, the customers who are not necessarily engaged with the app every single time. And so when we get to something like Wednesday, which I'm sure we're going to get into in a second, when we get to something like Wednesday, the question of that show, which has been tremendously successful for Netflix, one of its most popular, most in-demand shows of all time, you know, how valuable is that success comes down to the question of which audience is it serving? Right. Wednesday is tremendously successful already. It just came out recently. But if the people who are watching that show are effectively the same people who are watching Stranger Things or any of these other shows like Dahmer, are you really growing the audience or are you just catering to the same people? Obviously, there's some value in that. As you mentioned, you want to prevent people from churning. But Netflix also needs to grow its total number of subscribers. And there's a question I think I'm, I'm hearing you ask if those shows can actually expand the total audience as well. Exactly. If we look at Netflix's most recent earnings, where Netflix saw a tremendous amount of growth was not in the United States and Canada, which saw about 100,000 ads, but they saw the biggest number of subscribers being added was in its APAC region, the Asia Pacific region, where they saw more than a million subscribers added. And this is kind of in line with what's been happening at Netflix. So on the one hand, you have just kind of expansion efforts a little bit. People are adopting Netflix faster in those regions because they haven't hit levels of saturation that they've hit in the United States and Canada. That's to be expected. But you also have shows like Extraordinary Attorney Wu, which premiered and saw huge engagement with that show, um, both in that region and then globally, kind of what they saw with Squid Game, although not to that exact level. And that show quickly became one of Netflix's top 10 performing non-English speaking shows. We saw that happen in the charts. And if you look at Netflix's own, again, self-reported numbers, it tells a really interesting story where you see some of its biggest shows, you know, two shows that have been on the top 10 list for more than 25 weeks, not consecutively, but have just been on that list more than 20, for more than 25 weeks at a time are two Colombian telenovelas. And so now you see Netflix really getting into the telenovela space because there's an audience there that they really want to reach. And so this is the thing with Netflix is if you produce a show, especially a show like Wednesday, which is not necessarily tremendously expensive, it's not hitting a Stranger Things level, but it is based on existing IP. It does come from Tim Burton. It does have an extra marketing spend behind it because of all these things happening. It gets a little bit expensive. And the question of that show is if it engages and prevents churn, which is great, is it preventing churn from high-risk subscribers or is it bringing in a new batch of subscribers? 
the Venn diagram between the Wednesday audience and the Stranger Things audience is one giant circle. And that is a highly, highly engaged audience. They're not necessarily churning every single month. You might have some who go back and forth between streaming services if they're looking to cut one out. This is something that um, CEO Reed Hastings over at Netflix has also alluded to that he understands people will leave, but he's hoping that they'll come back. You know, Wednesday might not necessarily be the type of show that does that, although I do suspect we will see a subscriber bump from the engagement with this because, again, it is a hits-driven business. The issue with Netflix as it becomes a global business is how do you create a hits business that travels globally without investing too much in expensive content? Because if you invest in IP, 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 and you're trying to create franchises and you're investing a lot, the return on that has to be significantly higher versus what they're trying to do is really trying to get localized content from international regions to travel domestically and travel globally as well, because they it's a little bit cheaper and it really uh, leans into their efforts as a global company. So Wednesday is this great success story for Netflix as a hit at a time when Netflix really needed to remind people that they can do hits, you know, with Stranger Things, Dahmer, Wednesday, they're kind of able to recapture that engagement at a cultural zeitgeist level. But from a financial level and from a strategy level, are those shows actually increasing the type of subscriber growth or retaining the type of subscribers that they really need to in order to create a sustainable business? And that's less clear. Well, it sounds like part of the answer is going to come from whether some of those other shows you mentioned, like the Colombian telenovelas, are actually moving the needle and if they are cost effective in doing so. What is the ROI for them on these other types of shows that they need to fill in those gaps to have that kind of incremental growth they need to? For every Squid Game that Netflix produces, there are a ton of international series that don't necessarily travel as well. Now, they're traveling better in the last few years than they traveled, you know, five, six years ago. And the signs are extremely positive for Netflix when you look at kind of the, the global consumption across different regions. And of course, we have to remember that hits, first and foremost, are designed to be hits in their own regions. You know, if it's a show that's coming out of Spain, it is designed to find a base in Spain. If it is a show coming out of South Korea, it is designed to find a, a home in South Korea. The issue that is happening with Netflix is that the cost of content in the United States, so kind of English-speaking American-produced content is getting much, much more expensive and the competition for it is much, much, much higher. And so when you look at the base that Netflix is working around and you're also looking at lower revenues, you're kind of determining how you're going to increase your revenue. You're you're trying to determine how to not necessarily decrease your your investment in content, but really make that buck kind of stretch a little bit further. This is where you really need your global content to travel to different countries, whether it's a show in South Korea traveling to Spain or whether it's a show from Mexico traveling to Canada, whatever it is, you really want those types of series that are a little bit cheaper to produce and also really brand Netflix as this global player. And we haven't really seen that happen too much as of right now. So they still do need shows like Wednesday. Those types of big, big shows create cultural zeitgeist moments. It brands Netflix in a way that they really need in order to compete against other companies that have built in an IP and franchises like Disney or really strong prestigious plays like Apple and HBO Max. But as Netflix really starts to find its foothold in the global content space, which is something that its competitors really don't have an advantage on. Finding ways to expand the audience to demographics that are not necessarily signing up for Netflix or engaging with Netflix and are therefore really, really important to bring on board and really, really important to make sure that they don't unsubscribe once they are on board becomes just as prevalent, if not more prevalent than banging out a Stranger Things 4 or a Wednesday every single year. I don't envy the job these guys have, uh, whether they need Billy Bean and and the Moneyball guys on staff or not. um, It's going to be really 
tricky and really interesting to see what they can do here to increase the stock price and to uh, expand the subscriber base if they can do so. Julia, great to see you. Great to see you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.